Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to this Friday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Patricia Murphy, political reporter and columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And while I'm a regular panelist on Fridays, today I have the honor of filling in for Bill Nygut, who is getting a well-deserved day off. Well, Winston Churchill is credited as saying that history is written by the victors. Or in other words, the history we consume is not necessarily based in fact, but rather the interpretations and perspectives of those who hold power. When it comes to the United States Civil War, history shows us that Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered to General Ulysses Grant at Appomattox, Virginia in 1865. But it's not uncommon to hear the phrase, the South won the Civil War. Not in fact, mind you, but in the battle of culture, memory, and writing history. The abolition of slavery did not stop the racial terror that emerged in post-war United States, and the narrative of the Confederate cause did not surrender alongside General Lee. Today, we can see how that is reflected in the histories we teach our children and how we contextualize the physical landmarks and monuments that represent the country's past both in ways that are honest and in ways that are not. Clint Smith's new book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America, takes readers on a really remarkable tour of these monuments, memorials, and landmarks. He offers a contemporary portrait of how slavery and slave owning have shaped our nation's collective history. He's also a writer for The Atlantic and author of Counting Descent. Clint Smith joins me this morning. Clint, welcome and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And also joining me today to enrich our conversation and our understanding is Political Rewind favorite, Dr. Andra Gillespie. She's professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Andra, it's great to have you today. I'm happy to be here today. Well, Clint, the book that you've written is really a, just a wonderful work of journalism and scholarship, but it's also a really personal story for you. Um, and you write in the epilogue about your ancestors. And I'd like to start, though, uh, with a little bit about that, because to me, it's so central in your story and the book that you've written. And you wrote that your grandfather's grandfather was enslaved. And I would love it if you would share with our audience um, uh, what you know about your grandfather's grandfather and, and how that's informed your book. Yeah, I think part of what was happening uh, is that I was I spent about four years writing this book, uh, started in 2017. And I was having conversations with all of these scholars, all of these historians, public historians, tour guides, visitors, docents, you know, descendants, all of these folks who were uh, whose stories and whose lives were central to the places I was visiting. And I had a moment where I realized that I was bringing a level of intentionality uh, to the conversations I was having with these strangers that I had never brought to my own family, right? And like I was asking strangers questions about their lives and their sort of intimate histories. And, uh, and I had never been that intentional or formal in asking my own grandparents some of these questions. And, and part of what you realize in going to many of these places is uh, that, you know, Sometimes the best primary source documents or the best primary sources uh, are not necessarily only in the archives, but they're also the people right next to you. Uh, and I had a moment where I was walking through the museum, the National Museum of African American History and Culture alongside my grandparents, my grandfather, who was born in 1930, Jim Crow, Mississippi, my grandmother born in 1939, Jim Crow, Florida. And we were walking through this museum that was documenting so much of the history that they lived through themselves, that was documenting so much of the violence that they lived through themselves. And I was talking to my grandmother after, and she kept saying this refrain. She was like, I lived it. I lived it. I lived it. Uh, and and so after we visited the museum, I sat down and, and sort of formally interviewed my grandparents about their childhood, about their history. And, and I guess I, I never considered that my own grandfather's grandfather was someone born into slavery. And so it was this moment in which I was more acutely aware of my proximity to this period of time and our collective temporal proximity 
to this period of time, that this history we tell ourselves was a long time ago was not in fact that long ago at all. You know, when my four-year-old son sits on my grandfather's lap, I imagine him sitting on his grandfather's lap. And I'm reminded that, uh, again, that in the scope of human history, uh, this this period of time was was just yesterday. Oh, that really is just so moving. And to me, it was such a moving part of the book. And um, then you also go ahead, when you start the book, you actually start in New Orleans, where you grew up. And that's the beginning of the tour that you take uh, readers on across America. And also you do have a stop in Africa as well. Um, but when you start in New Orleans, um, you write that, uh, of course, Mitch Landrieu removed the Confederate statues from the public spaces um, in 2017 in New Orleans. So what was it like for you growing up in New Orleans and then also to re-examine it in this book and to look back at that, knowing what you know now. It's interesting because I don't think I developed a really full or sophisticated understanding of what those statues meant about what Confederate iconography meant until I was an adult. You know, I mean, so much of this book was written uh, by uh, or after the Confederate statues came down in New Orleans. So statues of Robert E. Lee, PGT Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, and you know, I was watching these statues come down from my home here in Maryland and thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. What did it mean that to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard to get to the grocery store. We had to go down Jefferson Davis Parkway, that my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy, that my parents still live on a street named after someone who owned 150 enslaved people. And the thing about symbols and iconography and, and names is that they're not just symbols, right? Like they are reflective of the stories that people tell. And those stories shape the narratives that communities carry. And those narratives shape public policy. And public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives, which isn't to say that taking down a 60-foot-tall statue of Robert E. Lee is going to somehow erase the racial wealth gap. But it is to say that all of these things are part of the same ecosystem of ideas and stories that help us understand what has happened in American history and what has happened to certain communities in the context of American history uh, and what we can do in order to make amends for the harm uh, that has been done to these communities over the course of generations. Yeah, I heard Mitch Landrieu interviewed one time, and he said he really had never considered how it would be for a black child to walk past a statue of Robert E. Lee. And he hadn't thought about it until a friend of his who had also grown up in New Orleans told him and mm. said, told him how difficult it was and how offensive it was. Um, and Andra, I know it's such a shared experience for black Americans growing up here with one set of facts, but now to look back that on that today with new information and how do you think that's informed our conversation that we're having today? Is that what this is about, do you think? Well, I mean, I think at the heart of the story, is uh, a discussion about the fact that we actually don't have a common history and we don't have shared facts. That's where a lot of this debate, like if we think about the debate between about critical race theory, um, the 1619 project versus the 1776 project, like the demarcation of the start date is actually really important there. And what people are contesting there is what version of history we're going to tell. And it's not based in objectivity it is not based in the archive. It's not actually based on the historical record. Uh, the, the fact that there's even a fight about this is a fact that this is about political positioning. It's about people who are used to being told that they were right and that they won being uh, told, yeah, no, no, that's actually a little bit more problematic and you need to provide more nuance and context. And you know what? You're not always going to look uh, that good kind of coming out of the story or reckoning sort of with the fact that there are some people have unfair advantages um, and some truly have more so than others and acknowledging that place and position that's going on there. And ultimately, at the end of the day, like when I think about this in terms of policy, it's not just that people don't agree about history. It's also that they don't, uh, you know, sort of understand how systems work against each other. So there are different understandings of sort of what systems of oppression look like. Um, and the idea that people are not individuals and making their own way all the time, but that sometimes some people are held back because there are rules and practices and customs that are in place that are designed to systematically sort of give some people advantages while denying other people those same advantages is something that's really sobering because it upsets our notion of what the American dream is. Um, and the irony is, is that Black people and people of color still believe in the American dream. They never abandoned it. Um, and um, 
but yet they do this with a more jaundiced view of knowing sort of the ways that it's going to be unfairly sort of practiced and unfairly distributed to them for their effort. And we're not having that conversation right now. We're talking past each other. Um, that's such a, that's so well put. Um, Clint, you wrote and you wrote at the end of the book that just choosing the places to go and even which ones of the places that you did go to, um, choosing which ones to include in the book was really one of the most difficult parts of your process. And there's such an incredible variety. There's New Orleans and New York City and a plantation and a prison. How did you choose the places to include? What did you want to make sure that we knew from your travels? Yeah, part of uh, what I wanted to do was make sure that I was reflecting the sort of patchwork of memory and and the patchwork of understanding that uh, I think is reflective of of the American experience or the American public consciousness around slavery. As was mentioned, like we have a, a profoundly inconsistent uh, understanding of what slavery was in this country. And, and that is in part tied to uh, the fact that our country is so so vast and there's so much cultural and racial heterogeneity. Uh, but also we have, there's no, there's no national curriculum, right? Like we have thousands and thousands and thousands of individual school districts uh, some and individual independent schools who who are deciding for themselves what their curriculum will look like. And within those, a lot of teachers, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of teachers who are making decisions for themselves about what um, what and how they'll teach. And so, so much of the way that people teach history, uh, whether it is in the context of a formal classroom or in their homes, is based on how they were taught about history, right? For so many people, history is not uh, about primary source documents or historical fact or empirical evidence. It is it is a story that they have been told, and it is a story that they then tell. It is an heirloom that is passed down across generations. Uh, and, and I found that, uh, that a, a, a yearning for nostalgia um, was sort of manifested itself uh, more profoundly in some places than it did in others. So, you know, I wanted to capture a spectrum of places, places like the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana, which is one of the only the only plantation in Louisiana and one of the only plantations in the country that centrally focuses uh, its curatorial experience on the lives of enslaved people. Uh, and it is a place that is surrounded by a sort of constellation of plantations where people continue to hold weddings and big parties and, you know, take selfies in front of the homes of former enslavers where, you know, I talked to wedding planners who talked about uh, how at many of these plantation wedding venues, people would use the former slave cabins as bridal suites. Uh, and so the Whitney is a place that fundamentally rejects the idea that a plantation can uh, ever be understood as something other than an intergenerational site of torture and exploitation. Uh, and and it is important and it is remarkable uh, that it does the work that it does. But what's almost most remarkable about it is that it shouldn't be remarkable, right? Like it should be uh, normal uh, that the that a plantation is centering the lives of the people who were enslaved and who built that plantation, who made that plantation possible, and not the lives of the people who did the enslaving. So on one end of the spectrum, you have that. And then on the other end, you have a place like uh, Angola Prison, which is the, you know, not only an hour away from Whitney, but uh, is, you know, for context, the largest maximum security prison in the country, 18,000 acres wide, bigger than the island Manhattan. It's a place where the vast majority of people uh, 75% of the people held there are black men serving life sentences, uh, and it is built on a former plantation. And what I tell folks is that if you were to go to Germany and you had the largest maximum security prison in Germany, and it was built on top of a former concentration camp in which the people held there were disproportionately Jewish, that place would rightfully be a global emblem of anti-Semitism. It would be abhorrent. It would be disgusting. We would never allow a place like that to exist because it would so clearly run counter to all of our moral and ethical sensibilities. And yet here in the United States, we have the largest maximum security prison in the country, 18, you know, bigger than the island of Manhattan, built on a former plantation in which black men go out and continue to work in fields for virtually no pay while someone watches over them with on horseback with a gun over their shoulder. Uh, and so those are two different, um, fundamentally different experiences. And I, and I wanted to capture how each of them are thinking about or failing to think about their respective relationship to slavery and then sort of capture a plurality of places um, 
in between. You even on your Twitter feed, you have a picture of a coffee mug that you bought at Angola Prison, and the co- and the coffee mug says Angola Prison, a gated community. Um, so it's almost still a joke to some people. It, it, the fact yeah. that there is a gift shop to me was a little bit crazy. Yeah, it's you know I've worked in prisons uh, and jails as a teacher for about seven years now, um, and so I you know when I went to Angola, I felt uh, I felt pretty familiar with with carceral settings um but i was not prepared for what it meant to to both see as i mentioned see these men like working in fields while someone watches over them um in that way like it's one thing to read about it and it's another thing to see it and to and to hear them uh and to see their like physical bodies and sort of alongside one another and then that is as you mentioned sort of the experiences the haunting and unsettling nature of the experience is amplified by the fact that 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 the that the largest maximum security prison in the country has a gift shop where they sell shot glasses and coffee mugs and t-shirts and and stuffed animals dressed in in prison garb right and as you said on it it says on on some of these uh on some of this paraphernalia it says angola a gated community as if to make a mockery of to belittle the experiences of thousands of people many of whom were sentenced as children, many of whom were sentenced by non-unanimous juries, which which has since been rendered unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of the United States because it was created with a specific intention in the 19th century, as the state of Louisiana said for itself, to maintain white supremacy in the state so that they could continue to incarcerate and convict as many black people as they could. Uh, And that is a legacy that was with uh, the state of Louisiana until until just recently uh, when the state overturned it in in an effort that was led by formerly incarcerated people. So, uh, yeah, Angola, you know, I could have written an entire book just about my experience at Angola. It's a, it's a profoundly haunting place. Um, and, and so much of how that institution, uh, has historically failed to interrogate its relationship to the land and the way that its practices today are informed by a history that they are largely unwilling to acknowledge, um, is sort of all around us. I'm going to um May take... I just I'm interject. Sorry. Yes, Patricia. Please. Uh-huh. Who's the market for this gift shop? Like who comes there is this for tourists is or do you suppose that the or did they suppose that the um that the families of those who are incarcerated are going to go buy a shot class as a memento of where their loved one is incarcerated like Yeah, so it's connected to a museum. Uh, so in front of the prison is a, the Angola Museum, uh which is ostensibly meant to uh, tell the history uh, and tell the story of of Angola prison from its founding um, and its origins to to now. Uh, the the as I experienced when I went there uh, at the time, the museum there was a lot left to be desired. Um, it did not uh, in any place mention slavery. Um, it seemed to uh, be a place that that lifted up and. Um, not necessarily glorified, but it 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 had these sort of uh, many exhibits that showed uh, about the the violence, the history of violence in the prison. But specifically, not the violence of the institution or the violence of the wardens or the violence of the guards, but the violence of people who were incarcerated there. And then they have sort of walls of honor of all of the the guards uh, or all of the wardens who historically have been there. So it, it, you know, it, it is a museum that is full of propaganda. Um, that is meant to tell a very specific story about the history of that prison and what that prison is, um, who the dangerous people in that prison are, uh, who the heroes of that institution are, um, in ways that have clearly not been informed by uh, the families of incarcerated people or incarcerated people themselves. Uh, I, I recently received an email from somebody who read the book and said they were visiting. Uh, they w- they went to visit the museum, and apparently the museum uh, is is in the process of beginning to make some changes to their uh, curatorial process. So, so we will see. Uh, but when I went there, it was, um, it was unsettling. Mm. I'm, I'm going to take us back to one of the first stops in your book, um, which I think is also one of the most important and foundational. And that was Monticello, which is Thomas Jefferson's estate in Virginia. Um, and you really eloquently write that he really defined Americans concept of liberty, um, while he was also enslaving more than 400 people, um, including his own children. Um, mm. And so I'm hoping you could describe your experience at Monticello. And, and they're changing the way they're telling the story there as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the reasons that I wanted to go to Monticello um, is is because I, I wanted to spend time at a place that was sort of emblematic of our founding. Uh, and I think that Jefferson in many ways personifies the story of America uh, in the sense that America is, is a country that has provided unparalleled, unimaginable opportunities for millions of people across generations in ways that their ancestors could have never imagined, but, it, but has directly done so at the expense of millions and millions of other people who have been intergenerationally subjugated and oppressed. And both of those things are the story of America. You have to hold both of those realities at once in order to understand the history of this country. And so for Jefferson, as you mentioned, he wrote in one document that all men are created equal and wrote in another document that black people are inferior to whites in both endowments of body and mind, as he put it. He said that uh, he wrote one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world and also enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, including, as you said, four of his own children that he had by an enslaved woman, Sally Hemings. And so when I'm going to Monticello, part of what I'm trying to see examine is how that institution tells a full and honest story about who Jefferson was and to what extent are they also making sure that when we tell the story of Monticello, we are not singularly centering Jefferson, but that we're also telling the story of the enslaved families who lived there, the Hemingses, the, the Fawcett's, the Grangers, and so many others, who in many ways that land belongs to more than it belongs to him. Jefferson was just practically away from Monticello for extended periods of time in Washington, D.C., in Philadelphia, in Paris, in New York City, uh, in his various roles with the U.S. government. And so it was the enslaved families who lived there who cultivated that land, who built community on that land, who had families on that land, who made that land what it was. Um, and as you say, Monticello is is fascinating because, you know, I got so many messages uh, from people who who have visited Monticello. I mean, it's it's perhaps the most popular or the most famous plantation in the country, if not the world, um, even if many people don't even always understand it as a plantation. Uh, and so many people who said, oh, I went on a tour of Monticello, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And, and the experience you had was very different than the one I had, which is to say I went on a tour that was focused specifically on slavery at Monticello. And it was uh, uh, led by a guy named David Thorson, who's a remarkable, remarkable uh, character. Sometimes in nonfiction, you find these people who are like better characters than you could ever imagine if you were to write a novel um, and say these things that you're like, I would never come up with that. So I'm really glad that you said it. But he he gave this masterclass, this sort of 45 minute masterclass on Jefferson and his relationship to slavery. And I always remember there were these two women, uh, Donna and Grace, who uh, were on the tour with me. And as as the tour was going on, they were clearly unsettled by what they were hearing. Their mouths were agape. And I went up to them after and I said, could you tell me a little bit about how you just experienced what David said? And, and Donna said, man, he really took the shine off the guy. You know, these are people who said, I had no idea that Jefferson owned slaves. I had no idea that Monticello was a plantation. And these are folks who bought plane tickets, who got hotel rooms, who rented cars, who came to this place as a sort of pilgrimage to see the home of one of our founding fathers and had no conception that it was the a place where that he was an enslaver or that this had been a plantation that enslaved hundreds of human beings. And for me, that was such an important moment because it was a microcosm, I think, of how so many millions of people across this country don't understand the history of slavery in any way that is commensurate with the actual impact that it has had on this country. Andra, let me bring you in on this. Yeah, so Clint, I mean, I completely um, identify with this. Um, as many listeners know, I'm from Virginia, and I did my undergraduate at the University of Virginia in the mid-90s. Mm. So I know what the old tour looked like, probably took it the first time when I was in high school. And, uh, you know, and then as a student, you know, you went there, you know, sort of as a prospective student, and then, then spent some time there. And I was there when the DNA tests kind of came out that, that mm. proved that it was a male in Jefferson's line that had fathered Sally Hemings children. And... Uh, and I just re I remembered uh, uh, my uh, mentor uh, as an undergraduate, uh, Dr. Paula McLean was hosting an international conference. It was right after Annette Gordon-Reed's book came out. She bought us copies of it and she had arranged for a conference for us to go to Monticello. So she's taking this international group of, of scholars there. Um, and, you know, what was partially cool about it was we got to go to the top floor, which you never get to do in the house tour. And so you actually saw furniture in there. I just remember just the mustard colored paint. And there really wasn't anything there, but like you could get a good view. And on that tour, because Paula, my mentor, had, it, you know, had, had primed everybody to start asking questions about Sally Hemings, somebody in the group raises, you know, her hand and asks about Sally Hemings and, and the paternity issue. 
Um, and uh, the tour guide was incredibly resistant. Like she was like, oh, no, no, like that. We don't know that. That's not true. That didn't mm. class happen. I think that was in September. It would have had to have been in September of 1998, um, late August, September. And then it was parents weekend. Um, so that would have been in October that the DNA test came out. Like my mom was with me. Um, I lived in one of the rooms that Thomas Jefferson designed on the lawn of the University wow. of Virginia. Um, and I was like, ha, that's funny. And so I wrote this editorial that I then like posted to the door of, of my lawn and it stayed there till I graduated. Um, and one of the things that's actually really interesting from an academic standpoint was oral history, right? It was the oral history of Black people who passed the story down from generation to generation that wasn't believed because we were too busy believing the letters because they were written from Thomas Jefferson's daughter that said, like, her daddy couldn't have possibly done that, mm -hmm. right? And so for some reason, the written word carried more weight than the um, than the spoken word of people who had lived the experience and knew the story and and were paying attention that I've always found so compelling about this story, um, and so you know I knew that in the wake of that Monticello was definitely trying to change the story to include more of those voices. You know they finally get to the point that they do acknowledge that Sally Hemings' children are in fact Jefferson, but I'll also never forget just like the resistance and sort of like outright hostility of this tour guide almost 25 years ago, who was like, nope, we're not having that discussion. It didn't happen because I said so. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I'll just add that I think, you know, that the fact that they have prevented um, or not believed Black people um, is part of a much larger phenomenon across American history. I mean, Annette Gordon-Reed writes so movingly in her book about the way that Madison Hemings, Thomas Jefferson's son, uh, by Sally Hemings, you know, he gave a, he was interviewed by a newspaperman uh, by a reporter in the late 19th century, uh, who, and he, he, he sort of laid it all out. He's like, this is how I was raised. This is what our childhood was like. This is what the relationship between Jefferson and my mother was like. And this is, you know, Je and Jefferson is my dad. And the interesting thing is that, like, when this was happening, everybody knew, right? Like it was in the newspaper. It was, they used it against Jefferson when he was running for his second term. There were people who were saying like, you know, they were using terrible slurs around Sally Hemings, but it was very clear um, that this was part of uh, the story of Jefferson. And, and there was a concerted effort, as there often is throughout American history, to uh, to almost gaslight people into thinking that something that happened didn't actually happen and sort of using the testimony of a black person to dismiss it. Uh, right. To suggest that, oh, this black person is simply trying to make themselves more proximate to Jefferson. There's no way Jefferson had children by by the Sally Hemings. And uh, yeah, it's just it's it's fascinating to think about. And so that's why it's so powerful that now Monticello is using uh, oral testimonies um, when the children of Jefferson, uh, their own oral testimonies was was neglected and pushed aside for far too long. OK, well, we have so much more to talk about. We're going to hit our first break right here. But stay with us. We'll be right back with more Political Rewind. And we're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Patricia Murphy, political reporter and columnist for the AJC, filling in today for Bill Nugget. I'm joined by Emory University's Andre Gillespie and author Clint Smith. His new book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America, came out last month. Now we're going to get back into the conversation. Um, Clint, one of my main takeaways from the book were is really some Americans need, especially white Americans need, um, to tell themselves a story about the past that they can live with and almost, in some cases, be proud of. Um, and I think that really comes out in one of the places you visited, which was Blandford Cemetery in Petersburg, Virginia. Um, and more, more than, excuse me, 30,000 Confederate soldiers' remains are buried there. And you actually spent time with sons of Confederate veterans. And I, I can't actually imagine the experience of being descended of enslaved from enslaved people and also spending time with people descended from Confederate soldiers. And please tell us what that was like for you. Yeah, I was, uh, I was a conspicuous presence at mm -hmm. such an event, as you can imagine that there, it was the sons of Confederate veterans Memorial day celebration. Uh, and you know, I think that I was, I'm really just, I was so curious, right. About like, what, what is it that leads someone to believe a set of facts 
uh, or to believe uh, to believe uh, what they believe to be facts, um, in spite of the fact that it is empirically false, right? That it is it is untrue. How, how does one come to believe that? You know, and make statements like I I heard on many occasions when I was there that the Civil War wasn't actually about slavery, that and they they don't even call it the Civil War; they refer to it as the War of Northern Aggression. You know that the people who are held there are. Um, who were buried there are people who who fought to protect their homes and their families uh, and their culture um, from the from the impending um, imposition of of northern culture and military force. And you know, all you have to do is look at the Declarations of Confederate Secession in eighteen sixty one, where the Confederate states say very directly why they were seceding from the Union and why the war was about to be fought. If you look at a state like Mississippi, they say in 1861, our position is thoroughly aligned with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. You know, Or you look at uh, Alexander Stevens' cornerstone speech um, in 1861, where he says the, the cause of the present revolution is the fact that we believe Africans are inherently inferior and thus should be uh, subjected to slavery in perpetuity. Right, And then you know, what's fascinating is that after the Civil War ended in 1865, people go back up to Alexander Stevens and they say, you know, what do you have to say for yourself? Right? You said that you, you said all these things in the Cornerstone speech. You said that black people were inferior. You said that we wanted slavery in perpetuity. Now you've lost the war. What what do you have to say? And he's like, I never said that. And they're like, what are you what are you talking about? We we were there. It was a speech. It's in the paper. And he was like, they must have misquoted me. I never said anything like that. And it was this sort of 19th century iteration of, of again, gaslighting that we see in many ways replicated in our political discourse uh, and environment today that, you know, it has a sort of Orwellian intent, which is to sort of muddy the water and make us think that the things that we heard or the things that we saw, the things that we know are are something that can be called into question. And so the larger thing with the Sons of Confederate Veterans and the people I spent time with there was just that, as I kind of mentioned before, for so many people, it is their sense of history is deeply entangled in a sense of lineage, in a sense of family, uh, in a sense of identity. You know, I think about a guy named Jeff, who I spent a lot of time with. Jeff, one of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, he talked about how he and his grandfather would sit in the gazebo at the center of the cemetery uh, and watch the sunset and watch the deer sort of uh, chew on grass and, and slalom through the tombstones and how his grandfather would sing, they would sing uh, the Dixie song uh, and his grandfather would tell him these stories of the remarkable brave men buried in the cemetery. And now that is a story that Jeff tells his granddaughters. And so if Jeff is to accept information about uh, what runs counter, you know, accept information that runs counter to the story he's been told, it is not only a question of accepting a different history, it is accepting a question he is going to have to accept a different understanding of who his grandfather is, of the stories his grandfather told him, and thus of his relationship to this man he loves and his sense of self, like it threatens to disintegrate so much of who he has grounded himself or understood himself to be in relation to these stories he's been told. And for many people, that's that's hard to let go of. It's like an existential crisis. And it's not to say that that's an excuse. There are plenty of people who have ancestors who fought for the Confederacy and say, I, these are my ancestors. They fought a war for a terrible thing, and I am not defined by the decisions my ancestors made. But there are also other people whose sense of self is, they believe, too fundamentally entrenched uh, in this myth uh, that even when they are presented with information that uh, that shows that that myth is a myth, um, they are unwilling to let go of it. Andra, what, come on in here. Yeah, I mean, so the, there are a lot of things about that chapter that were very interesting. So my childhood church is in Petersburg, so I've spent a lot of time there. Didn't know that this cemetery was there, so it was illuminating to hear you talk about it. Um, and there are a couple of things that, you know, kind of get me. I mean, the whitewashing, I understood, but I couldn't ignore the place. Like, I actually, like, mapped this out since I was like, okay, let me see where this is. So this can't be far because it's on Crater Road, sort of where there's the big battle, of the cradle, where the Petersburg National Battlefield Park is. So there is an official sort of battlefield park to remind people of what's happening there, where there are events and activities that go on regularly, that yet these people host their own event not that far away. So, like, you know, there is a place where there are professional historians who can guide you through the history of this. Yet people are choosing to do their own thing. And they're also doing this in a city whose demographics are drastically changed. So uh, uh, Petersburg, proportionally speaking, in terms of its black population, has a black population that is proportionally akin to Detroit. So you are in a super black city, 
um, in this Confederate thing, hosting like, you know, a Confederate war reenactment and, and singing Dixie from the gazebo. Like, there's just something to that that's actually, like, really interesting. I mean, I don't know if you have a response to that, but just rhetorically, like, that just, like, th like that's an assertion of place, and that's an assertion of power that doesn't comport with reality. Uh, that, that I also just found very compelling, in part because of my familiarity with the area. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it reflects that it is a proactive choice that people are making, right? It is not that you have to actively work to continue to tell yourself a certain story in the face of uh, a shifting political consciousness, a shifting cultural consciousness, uh, and an historical evidence that the story that you, your granddaddy told you or your grandmother told you or your family told you, that that is true uh, in spite of everything else you see. It's like people feel the walls closing in on them. Uh, and, and you have to work uh, actively uh, to you know, find community with people who can collectively continue to distort for themselves and tell one another a story um, that, again, like gives them uh, a sense of, of identity in the world. I mean, it ultimately just comes like, well, that is, you know, that's what humans do is we try to, we're like on this earth for however long we are and, and we try to tell ourselves stories or do things that give us purpose and meaning and value. And sometimes, you know, those stories aren't true, but people hold on to them because because that's all they have. So we naturally what, what? focus so much of our retelling of slavery and slavery's history on the South. But you also went to New York City as a part of your tour, um, which I did not realize was the second largest slave port in the in the United States. Um, and the mayor of New York, you wrote, wanted to secede from the union, which I also mm -hmm. didn't know. So what took you to New York and what did you learn there that you that you didn't know before? Yeah, I mean, two things you just mentioned. I had no idea that, uh, you know, New York City was the second largest slave port in the country for an extended period of time after Charleston, South Carolina. I had no that, uh, no idea that Fernando Wood, the mayor of New York City in 1861, want, like proposed seceding from the Union because the New York City, uh, sort of their economic and political and social uh, commitments were deeply entangled in the perpetuation of the slaveocracy in the South, uh, and and also that you know the Statue of Liberty uh, was originally conceived of. Uh, as a gift to the United States to celebrate the abolition of slavery, right? I always uh, connected it to Ellis Island and immigrants and the American promise of opportunity and democracy. But it was actually proposed, you know, many historians believe that Edward de Laboulaye, who was a French uh, anti-slavery uh, anti abolitionist, proposed it to the United States, proposed giving this gift to the United States um, to celebrate the, the 13th Amendment, uh, the passage of the 13th Amendment and the end of the Civil War. And there was pushback against it. Uh, and so the meaning began to change over time. But we can see it because the original design of the Statue of Liberty has Lady Liberty with broken shackles over her hands rather than a torch uh, and, and, and a book um, or a tablet. And, and then they moved them, uh, the shackles, to the bottom of her feet. Uh, and so that they're slightly hidden under her robe. And you actually can't see it unless you're viewing it from an aerial view, like a helicopter or or an airplane. And if you're on Liberty Island looking up at the statue, you can't see these chains. And for me, it became this perfect metaphor for how so much of the history of slavery in this country is like right in front of us and, and sort of hidden in plain sight. Um, that even when it's right there, we can't see it because we have failed to... Um, to mark the sites, we have failed to tell the stories. We have failed to acknowledge the history, um, and and the, you know the other part of New York City is that it felt important to me to make sure that you know for anybody who was reading this book as as an entry point to understanding the history of slavery, that they were under no delusion uh, that slavery was only something that happened in in the South. You know, I could have also done a, a chapter on Boston. I could have done a chapter on uh, Providence. Providence. I could have done a chapter on so many different places in the North. I could have done a chapter you know, on, on California, uh, it, there are slavery existed across this country, um, in, in profound ways. And so it was really important, um, to, to make sure that, you know, I was not, uh, perpetuating a, a mythology that slavery only existed in the South, even though it was most saturated in the South, um, it existed in many other places across this country. Under what does it tell you that we have even 
reimagined or redefined what the Statue of Liberty means um, to mean something other than what it was meant to symbolize in the first place? Well, I mean, so it that's incredibly profound. Um, and one of the things that it does is it actually does, in light of how the Statue of Liberty's meaning evolved over time, it does in some ways kind of link the African-American experience to the experience of those who are immigrating from Europe. Um, and I think it gives people sort of buy-in and ownership in, in ways that I don't think we thought of before. And, and that's and, and that's an interesting sort of thing to think of. So the same way that, you know, uh, you know, my friends whose uh, families you know, came through Ellis Island on their way to sort of their American journey can stop through there. I think that that gives African-Americans sort of a new appreciation for what the meaning of the of the Statue of Liberty is. So even though the stories are, are different. Um, and the trajectories are different, right? That there, there is something that's potentially unifying there. Um, but I think sort of, you know, what Clint's project is, you know, I've, I've been persuaded by colleagues like Joe Crispino um, at Emory, is that there's always this important reminder. It's really easy to dismiss the South as sort of being the backwoods part of sort of America. We're always the ones that like, you know, don't have our crap together. Um, and, uh uh, the project of newer Southern, younger Southern historians is to demystify this notion of Southern exceptionalism, right? And so by including a chapter on New York, Clint is being very intentional um, about making sure that everybody realizes the extent to which we're all implicated, um, you know, in this project of inequality, of this project of, 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 of racism, so that, you know, if you are, you know, you know, if you, you're like, I'm a New Yorker or I'm a Bostonian through and through, it's like, yeah, your hands aren't clean either. <laughs> like, you know, people were participating in this. They were trading slave, making lots of money off of it, building banks and famous universities and funding it and doing all of those things. So yeah, you might not have like, you know, owned Monticello or you might not have owned Angola or, you know, what became the Whitney plantation, but like, yeah, you, yeah, like, yeah, you, you benefited from it. Uh, you made money off of it. So you're, you're just as part, you're as much a part of the problem as the people who were sort of directly like, you know, uh, putting the lash to black backs. So I think it's really important. We talked about the project of equality. That's so well put. Um, and that reminded me, it's been such a historic year here in the United States for a lot of reasons, um, but also because we created the Juneteenth federal holiday. Um, and Clint, you went to Galveston, Texas, which is uh, what Juneteenth recognizes. Um, you have an entire chapter. You probably could have done an entire book on that as well. Um, but what should our audience know about what you learned in Galveston? Yeah, I, so I'm so, it's interesting. So I went to Galveston to do that reporting in uh, 2000, June 2019. Uh, so this was before, uh, obviously before everything that happened last year with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the sort of, uh, you know, the the conflagration of, of uh of, of episodes that made, you know, the the sort of summer of racial justice protests what it was uh, and has contributed to our sort of current um, racial reckoning to the extent that it continues. But but I went to Galveston. Uh, it, it's interesting. I went to Galveston three weeks after I went to Blanford. Um, and so I came from Blanford. I came from spending time, you know, with these Confederate uh, Sons of Confederate Veterans, United Daughters of the Confederacy, Neo-Confederates, Reenactors. And and being in Galveston was almost a sort of cleansing of the palate, if you will. It was it was so restorative because I was in this place uh, that, as the as the myth goes, is is the place that perhaps uh, General General Gordon Granger, um, from where he and of the Union Army, from where he announced uh, General Order Number Three, which stated uh, in no uncertain terms that all black people, all slaves, are now free, um, and thus freeing two hundred fifty uh, or letting. To over 250,000 uh, enslaved people in Texas know that they, the Emancipation Proclamation had actually been issued two years before, and, and General Robert E. Lee had surrendered at Appomattox, effectively ending the Civil War uh, two months before. Uh, and yet you had enslavers in Texas who were keeping that information um, from their enslaved human property because they wanted to you know, continue to get, use them for as long as they could. And, and until the Union army came into Texas and these various towns uh, around Texas, they largely were were able to. Um, and so, you know, I was in this room and I was with the descendants of people who whose families had been freed 
um, by that general order. And and there was a moment that I talk about in the book where everyone was singing, lift every voice and sing. And, you know, I grew up in a, I went to a black church, black family, black community. Like I've heard this song thousands of times, uh, but, but I had never experienced it in that way. It was so remarkable to, to hear people singing the lyrics of a song that was, was not an abstraction for them. It was real. It was visceral. It was, the, it was in their bones. It was in their blood. Um, and, you know, it is a good thing that Juneteenth is a federal holiday. Uh, and it is, but it also reflects, I think, the marathon of cognitive dissonance of what it means to be a black person in this country, which is to say that you Juneteenth becoming a federal holiday is, is great and important. And I would never suggest that it's not because that would do a disservice to the generations of black activists, specifically in Texas, who have been fighting for this for so long. But also so many state legislatures across the country are attempting to prevent teachers from teaching the very context from which Juneteenth emerges. And I think that that is the, you know, the the tension that has existed in American history for so long. Okay. Well, we, I'm going to go ahead and get our, get us to our final break. Stick around and we will be right back with more Political Rewind. And we're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Patricia Murphy, political reporter and columnist for the AJC. I'm sitting in today for Bill Nygut. I'm speaking with Clint Smith, writer for The Atlantic and author of How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. And I'm also joined by Andre Gillespie, professor of political science and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Um, and Clint... Uh, this book, of course, it is your work. It's a piece of history. Uh, to me, it's a piece of living history, um, and I'm so grateful for it. Uh, but we were talking before the break about um, how you put this book together. You were uh, sometimes going on day trips. You have small children. You would go on day trips to Monticello and come back and pick them up at preschool. Um, and how has all of this affected you to to travel across this country and meet these people and then go back home to your life. How are you after producing this remarkable work? Hmm. This book, I think part of what I want people to know is that this book is not written by someone who began this project as an expert on the history of slavery. Um, this book was written by someone who realized that I had a lot more to learn about this thing that I thought I knew a lot about. And I started spending time with the scholarship of folks like Annette Gordon-Reed and Leslie Harris and uh, Walter Johnson and um, Dinah Ramey Berry and all these scholars whose, whose, whose work has transformed my understanding of, of the history of slavery in this country and has transformed my understanding of, of this country. And I think putting those books in conversation with the places that those, those works are speaking to, putting them in conversation with the public historians, putting them in conversation with the descendants, putting them in conversation with like what it means to, you know, it's one thing to read about a slave cabin and it's another thing to stand inside of one. To like hear the way the wood moans under your feet when you take a step to see the way that there are cracks in the wood panes so that, you know, light slides through uh, and you think about how susceptible to the elements these families must have been. It, it, there's something just visceral and emotional um, about it in a way that I could only have experienced by going to these places. And so part of what I learned and part of how I've been changed is I think I just have so much more clarity about the history of this country. And it, it's powerful because I think so many young black children go up, grow up and aren't get, don't have the, the toolkit or the, his, the history or the information with which to push back against so much of the pathology that we hear about our communities. I know this because I experienced it. I know this because I was a high school English teacher and had students who experienced it. I know because I teach in prisons and jails and have students in there who experience it, right? And if you don't have the language or the history or the toolkit to push back against this, the abhorrent stereotypes and messages uh, that people tell you about yourself, then sometimes you begin to internalize it. And I think that part of what uh, this book has done is, is made it so that this country can no longer lie to me anymore. And and you're able to realize that the reason one community looks one way and another community looks another way is not because of the people in those communities, but because of what has been done to those communities generation after generation after generation. Andra, respond to that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think for people who are willing to actually do the work um, and actually contend with this history, I think you come out better for it. Um, 
And people have always asked me sort of in other venues about what to do sort of like with the anger about this. And I don't know why I may respond differently than some people do, but I think it's important to acknowledge that if you need to seek help in processing this information um, and, 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 and living with it, that by all means, make sure that you do it. But I think that there is something empowering about reckoning with this um, and being able to move forward. Clint, I had one final question for you. I mean, I think your book is complete and I think you're actually underselling yourself. So you might not have been an expert or, you know, a trained historian or coming at it from that particular lens. And as much as this book is written for a popular audience, it's obviously clear that you're engaging with scholarship. Uh, and, you know, it just doesn't have all the parenthetical citations that, you know, we would normally see in sort of a very dense academic book. Um, and so I think that this book is complete actually. But I, we always think about extensions and other things. And so one of the questions that I had sort of about your site selection was, did you consider for this or even for future work, other international sites of, uh, sites of slave reckoning, right? Because this wasn't just an American thing. We know that, you know, you could go to Brazil, you could go to the Caribbean. And I think about the things that I've experienced when I've been on sort of plantation or slave revolt sites abroad. Uh, there was this place I went to um, on vacation in Jamaica where the lens of the story was uh, the the mistress's madness, but like they didn't sugarcoat how cruel she was to her slaves. Like, mm. um, and and it, it was something I had never experienced in the United States or picking up slave um, shackles in Cuba. Like no, but no museum lets you do that in the United States. They're very heavy. Like they're extremely heavy. And just thinking about sort of like what that means to understand sort of how brutal this institution was is something that's really enlightening. And so I didn't know if you'd ever thought about doing another book or something else, you know, or adding yeah. to this book. Yeah. I mean, you know, this book is about eight places, but it could have been about 100,008. You know, I would love to go to Haiti. I would love to go to Brazil. I would love to go to Jamaica. I would love to go to Ghana. I would love to go to I mean, there's just so, Mexico, right? Like, I mean, there's so many places that have a relationship to this history that deserve to be interrogated. Um, and and who knows? Maybe that'll be a different project. And uh, we'll see. I'm looking forward to a, a long break right now. <laughs> well, uh, Clint Smith, on behalf of your Clint Smith fan club, I would encourage you to uh, to start working on your next book after <laughs> you've had a chance um, uh, to take a break with uh, with yourself and your family. Um, well, that's all the time we have for Political Rewind today. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Clint Smith, for taking the time to be with us. And thank you, Andre Gillespie, for joining us today. Um, thanks to producer Sam Berman-Dawes, senior producer Amelia Brock, and engineer Jesse Nyhauser for their great work. I'm Patricia Murphy. Thanks so much for joining us today. Stay healthy. And as Bill Nygut would tell you, get a vaccine, wear your mask, especially if you're in a city with mask mandates, and have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Take care. <laughs>